Well, in 1991, BBC sports presenter David Icke went on the Terry Wogan show and he claimed in front of a television audience of millions that he was the son of God. The studio audience started laughing, but David Icke was serious. Terry Wogan told him that the audience was laughing at him, not with him, but he persisted. He really did think that he was the son of God. And from that point on, it was quite a creepy, strange show, uh, as David Icke sort of tried to explain that he really was the son of God. Uh, Interestingly enough, now he'll tell you that some giant lizards tricked him uh, into it, so I wouldn't take him too seriously. (laughs) But uh, he wasn't the first, and he surely won't be the last, to say that he is the son of God. Throughout history, it's not a new idea in Christianity. It's not unique. So in Greek mythology, you have uh, Heracles, who passed over to Hercules, son of Zeus. Perseus, also son of Zeus. He had quite a few uh, children. We're going into all of them. But the similar ideas exist as well in Hinduism, uh, in Roman, Norse and Celtic mythology, the idea of gods having children uh, with people. And as a title, it existed in the names given to Roman emperors, Alexander the uh, Alexander, not Alexandra, that'd be a different one, wouldn't it? Alexander the Great, uh, Japanese emperors, Chinese emperors. It was even a title used of Genghis Khan. It was mixed really into the, the religious and the, the sort of position in Egypt, where the pharaohs were believed to be children uh, of the gods. But this evening, we don't want to know what David Icke thinks. We don't even want to know uh, what history sort of tells us about that way it's been used all across the world. What we want to really understand is what does the Bible mean by it when it says that Jesus is the Son of God. So what we're going to do to start with, we're going to look at how that phrase is used in the Bible, then how it's used with Jesus, and then finally how it's applied to us as well. So first of all, sons of God in the Bible. Uh, If you have a glance through the Bible, as as you look through, as you go through the Bible, you'll see actually that there are several different kinds of people, several different figures who are referred to as the Son of God. Just sort of going roughly chronologically, uh, the first one is Adam. Uh, In Luke 3, verse 38, uh, we're told that there's the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who's the Son of God. That's in Jesus' genealogy, but it's there saying that Adam was the Son of God. Adam uh, produced, uh, was produced in the likeness of God, wasn't he? He was created in the likeness of God. Just in the way that a father produces sons in his likeness. Indeed, when Adam has a son, Seth, that same language is used. So Genesis 5 verse 3. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So by this, we start to understand a little bit about what it means to be the son of God. It's partly the idea of having that image of God, reflecting the father's image. I mean, we all know uh, those situations, don't we, where you can see the Father and you can see the likeness of them in the Son. Well, it's a similar idea here, created after the likeness of the Father. So the first job of the first Son of God, if you think about it in a way, was to reflect the Father's image. He was to be an image bearer of God. But Adam failed in this, didn't he? Adam wasn't perfectly like his Father. He failed, and some image remained, but it was marred. He could still be called the son of God in that sense, but it was a marred image that he had. Now, if Adam was in God's image and Seth was in uh, Adam's uh, image, it's unsurprising then that the next group to be called sons of God in the Bible 
are the descendants of Seth, the Sethites. So in Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their, them as their wives any that they chose. Now there's quite a lot of controversy around those uh, verses, partly because the use of sons of God, as we'll see in a minute, can, can mean different things. But the simplest reading of it is that they are the sons of Seth. The context of it is we've just been given the godly line of Seth, who took after Adam's image. So it seems as though it's the godly line, the ones who should reflect God's image, as opposed to Cain's descendants, who were the ungodly cursed line, as the daughters of men. So they should have been reflecting God's image. They should have been going down Seth's line and being godly. But here again we see that the sons of God fail as they mingle with the godless line of Cain. And seemingly that puts a final nail in the coffin of the world as that's actually the passage where it's talking about the flood, the sort of final things that provoke God to send the flood. So the Sethites take that title, but they fail. The next people who are referred to in the Bible as sons of God are angels. Now, that's seen in the wisdom literature. So in Job, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So the idea there of angels presenting themselves before God. It's also found in the book of Daniel. So Daniel, chapter 3, verse 25. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, it could be a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ, but in the book it's interpreted as an angel. So Daniel 3:28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's demand and yielded up their bodies uh, rather than, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, uh, rather than serve and worship any god except their own. So Nebuchadnezzar understands it that God has sent an angel. Now that is on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, so we can't be certain, but there's an understanding there that the sons of God are angels. That's why there's a lot of confusion in Genesis when you get the sons of God being with the daughters of men. Some people think that it's uh, some sort of ma- uh, race of half-angels being born. But it's more likely to think that in those cases it's the Sethites, and in some rare cases the Bible uses it of angels. Why they're called the sons of God? Well, the closest really that you can come to it is perhaps that God made them, so in that sense he is their originator, their father. But we're not really told in the Bible why it's used in that way. And it's not really central in scripture, it's not really the main way that it's used, but it is there. The next group that's used more commonly is Israel itself. I'm going to give you three examples, but more exist. So Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 to 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel, um, sorry, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God is there saying that the nation of Israel is his firstborn son, equating to their firstborn sons that are going to die at Passover. Hosea 11 verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. Again, same language is used of of Israel. 
Jeremiah 31 verse 9. With weeping they shall come and plead with pleas for mercy. I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. So there the, the nation is used as a, as a son. So if you think about it, what we already know from Adam, Israel was supposed to reflect God's image like a father and a son. Israel was supposed to be God's ambassadors to the world, if you like, presenting his image to the world, living in line uh, with God, being holy because he is holy. But Israel also failed in that task, didn't they? They didn't live in the way that they were supposed to. They didn't uh, be the son of God that they were supposed to be. And there's another group that are referred to as the sons of God as well. So not just Israel, not just Adam, not just Sethites, not just angels, but the kings of Israel as well. Three examples again. Psalm 2 verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then uh, in 1 Chronicles 22, just a, thought a bit of a change from 2 Samuel 7. We've had that a lot of the last few weeks. It says, he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. And I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. And 1 Chronicles 28 verse 6. He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. So do you see that God is saying that the king there is his son. And it's used more generally in Psalm 2 of the kings. So the kings of Israel started to take this title um, because that's what God had said, that the, the descendants of David would be his sons. And because of that, looking forward to the king that was to come, the Christ that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, the Christ also took on this title. The son of God, the great king of Israel of David's line, who would rule forever. So the kings of Israel also had this title of the son of God. And there's one last group. I know it's quite a few, isn't there? Um... The last one is judges in Israel. So Psalm 82 verses 6 and 7. Uh, I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, this is only one occasion that this phrase is used uh, for this. But Jesus picks up this very statement in the New Testament to prove something. To prove that those who receive the word of God could also be called God or the sons of God. The, probably the term is being used because they're standing in God's place in judgment. But it's not a very common phrase, but it is there and Jesus does uh, pick up on it in the New Testament. So we have a plethora of meanings. So we have all sorts of different things that son of God can mean in the Old Testament. So the big question we need to ask is what does it mean when it's applied to Jesus? When we talk about Jesus being the son of God, what are we actually saying uh, that he's the son of God? Well, interestingly, again, Jesus never applies the title to himself. He never talks about himself as the son of God, never uses that phrase. He talks about the son referring to himself, but he never says, I am the son of God. Um, he approves of it, though, when others use it of him. So it's clear that he is saying it's right but he, he never actually stands up and, and says it of himself. So he does also call God his father, which is a big clue, isn't it? <laughs> He's the son, but he doesn't use the phrase itself. Why can we call Jesus the son of God? Well, first of all, the New Testament teaches that he is the literal son of God. 
So Luke chapter 1 verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What it's saying there really is that even humanly speaking, God is his father by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived in the child that was born. The father was God. Now, this is not the Mormon idea that God the Father came down to earth in a body and had sexual relations with Mary. That, that is not what we mean by he's literally the son of God. For a start, that wouldn't be a virgin birth, would it? So that wouldn't make any sense. But what we mean is that the conception happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Biologically speaking, Jesus had no father, but God fathered him by the Holy Spirit. So it's not a matter of the DNA, but the person of Jesus. So he is the literal son of God. God was his father. He had no human father. Secondly, he is the true king that we've been talking about. He is the one of David's line that we we spoke about with the son of David. Son of God was applied to the king of Israel. And that sometimes seems to be the emphasis of when that's used in the Gospels. So Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Seeming to put those two phrases together. Matthew 26, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. So putting those titles together again. John chapter 1, verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's sort of the idea put together. So used in this way, it was another title meaning the same thing as the Christ, the Messiah. But just because it is used that way doesn't exhaust the meaning. Equally, it was only used in that way because God had made promises to David that his son would literally be the son of God as that phrase was used. So God had placed it there in the Old Testament so that he could define what it really meant. It meant much more than just Israel's king, or even just the Christ. But the next thing we see about the way uh, that this is used is one we don't often think about. The third thing is that he is the true Israel. He's the true Israel. Matthew's Gospel begins with sections from uh, many of the passages that we read about Jesus, sorry, about Israel being... God's son. Uh, We then have Jesus being sent into the wilderness for 40 days to battle temptation. That's what uh, David read to us earlier. And again and again, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, do that. As if there's some doubt. Uh, Even though God has just said it to Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved son. Surely Jesus couldn't doubt that he was the son of God. It's more likely that we're supposed to understand it as him being the one who could resist the temptation that the devil is offering. Who could do what the son of God was supposed to do. Not just that that was his identity, but that's actually who he was and who he could be and who he, how he could live. Showing us that he is the son of God. And the symbolism with it there is obvious, isn't it? As Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to battle temptation, with all those quotes about Israel... It's saying Jesus himself is the new Israel. But unlike Israel, he passes the test in the wilderness. He obeys. He fulfills the covenant God had with them. 
You see, Israel is Matthew's big concern as he writes to his Jewish audience. But he's telling them that Jesus did all that Israel could not. He's saying that he is the true son of God in the way that Israel should have been. Being a shining light to the Gentiles. Being the one who perfectly reflected his father. So he's the true Israelite. He's the true Israel. And that's partly what it means there by him being the son of God in that part of Matthew. But he's not only the true Israel. Fourthly, he's also the true Adam. In Luke's gospel, you have the same account of Jesus' temptation. But Luke's gospel has the genealogy with Adam just before it. So Adam is the son of God that's just been mentioned before Jesus' temptation by the devil. The event is the same in Luke's gospel, but the symbolism is different. Luke is not so concerned with Israel, but he is concerned with the whole world. So Jesus is the new Adam who came to save all mankind. He's tempted, but he resists temptation like Adam should have done. He passes the test. And again, with that same temptation, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. But in Luke's gospel, then in your mind, that is, are you the true Adam? Are you the one who comes after him, who undoes what Adam has done? So Luke's big concern is that the gospel goes to all humanity. So Jesus is the one who did all that Adam could not and brings blessing to the whole world. So he's the true son of God in that way, too. But crucially, though, there is a fifth way that's not so obvious in the Old Testament that Jesus is the son of God. The fifth thing that we know about Jesus from the New Testament is that he is God, the son, not just the son of God, but God, the son. The one we call Jesus did not become God's son when he was conceived by Mary. He was already God's son. So that what was true for him spiritually for all time became true physically in Mary. There was never a time that Jesus was not God's son. It didn't just start with Mary. Before he became Jesus, though, we often refer to him as the son or sometimes the second person of the Trinity or the word. But that's for another week. So I won't go into that right now. But the son took on flesh and became a man, Jesus. But at that point, he was already God's son. So there was an attempt by the early church to get their head around this. Uh, the Nicene Creed. I'll read it to you and hopefully this will help us understand a little bit what we're saying here. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, <coughs> true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our, for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. So what it's saying there is that Jesus was already the son, but he was made incarnate by the Holy Spirit. He was begotten and not made. Now, the phrase that's sometimes used for that is eternally begotten. What we mean by that really is that there was never a point when the father was alone. There was never a point when... Jesus wasn't begotten, if you like. He was begotten eternally. He's always been begotten from the Father. So what we're talking about really is his relationship to the Father. He doesn't proceed from the Father like the Spirit, nor does he beget like the Father. His relationship has always been that he is begotten of the Father. 
I'll pause there for a second because I know this is tough to get your head around. And that phrase begotten gets complicated too, doesn't it? We don't use it much now. But the way it's used in the creed there is that it means that he was not created. He's not a creature. He's the same substance as the father. He's from the father somehow in a way that a child is from their father. But it's a relationship rather than an event that we're referring to. So there's never a point in history where we go, right, he was begotten. He's always been so. But that doesn't make him less than the father. Both are equally God. Now, it's in vogue at the moment to talk more specifically about these things, to sort of drill into the specifics of why things are. I've looked at it a lot in the last few years. Of, you know, why, uh, is there, why is God three, not two or four or seven? How is it that there is a father and a son and not just the father? And some clever people have tried to come up with answers, touching on that relationship between God the Father and God the Son. But the fact of the matter is, in the Bible, we're just not told. Uh, it's clear enough that the Son reflects his Father perfectly, but we're not really told the whys and the whats. And uh, Calvin, uh, in his Institutes, says that we need to con- content ourselves with what we find in Scripture, and not just try and go on and on and on uh, when God hasn't told us. God has told us all that we need to know. So Jesus is the son who reflects the father. That is what we're told. To the extent that if we want to see the father, it's enough to look at the son. To the extent that Paul can write that he is the image of the invisible God. These are son attributes, aren't they? The son reflects the father. This is not the way that the son of God, uh, sorry, this is the way the son of God is used, especially in John and the pastoral letters. Not so much the Christ, but the divine son of God, God made flesh. So Christ is the son of God, but especially in the way that he is God the son. But, just to complicate things even more, it says that he's the only son of God, doesn't it? But in the New Testament, there are others who are referred to as the son of God, aren't there? Christians are called sons of God too. So finally, what does it mean that we are sons of God? What does it mean that we are sons of God? Let me give you some wrong ideas first. Firstly, it doesn't mean that we are supermen. Believe it or not, there's a group of teachers in America who basically have this idea that we are sons of God, so we should be divine. We should be able to fly and walk through walls. And It was sort of big in the 90s. It's sort of calmed down a little bit now since <coughs> no one was able to fly or walk through walls or anything like that. So it's not the idea that suddenly we are divine in, in that sense. It's not that we are supermen. It doesn't mean that God uh, fathered our spirits on a planet in outer space. That's also an idea that's quite common now. Uh, It comes from Mormonism. Uh, The idea that God has a real body and spends his time impregnating his several wives to have spiritual children that he then sends to earth. That is not what it means when it says that we are sons of God. Just to clarify that, probably none of you are thinking that. But just to let you know, there are other views out there. What it means in the Bible is that we are adopted by God. We are God's children, but not exactly in the way that Jesus was. So let me uh, let, let me explain uh, this to you with some verses from Scripture. Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will. Galatians 4 verse 5, in order to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. As Christians, we have been adopted into the family of God as sons. And if you think about it, that's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? In one sense, we share the same status as Christ, as sons of God. He is our Lord, but the Bible teaches he's also our brother. So Hebrews 2 verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Just think about that for a second. God hasn't just saved us from our sins, but has made us sons. We are sons of God. God takes rebels who wanted him dead and brings them into his family. As sons, as heirs to him, alongside his own beloved son. In fact, he sends his beloved son to die to make these other people his sons. To adopt them into his family. What a privilege we have to have that title. That God would send his own son to bring that about. What astounding condescension from the Almighty to call dust children. But he does it through Christ. He doesn't just save us. He doesn't just make us scrape through. He adopts us into his family. This evening we are in the family of God as sons, as heirs. God has made us sons by adoption into his family. Not like a second rate thing. Adoption means full rights as sons. And not only that now, we share in part in his divine nature. So 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted us to know all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. In some way, by his spirit, we partake of the divine nature. Not to be supermen flying about, but to reflect our father's image. And that ultimately, when the rubber hits the road now, is what it means for us to be sons of God here and now. We're becoming more like the father as day by day we're conformed more to the image of his son, who's the perfect image of the father. We keep doing that. We go on day by day becoming more like the son until we come into our inheritance as sons in glory. Actually, the day-to-day thing of being a son of God is that we begin to look like Jesus. That's why the 2 Peter passage carries on in this way. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What he's saying there is that we're to become more and more like the Lord Jesus. God is doing everything to make that happen in our lives. Even our suffering and trials are part of that process to make us more like his son who suffered. So we too should make every effort to work to that end too. Becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are now children of the king. 
Why would we want to live like children of the dirt? You see, we can claim that title of son of God, but it means that it comes with a dignity, with an honour. We are children of the king and we need to live like children of the king. We have the amazing privilege that we can claim that title of son of God. Not like David Icke did, but knowing what we mean by it. But just like David Icke, we might be laughed at as we say that, as we live like that. But then Jesus was, wasn't he? We follow in his footsteps. And it's worth it for the privilege to be called a child of God. To be part of God's family, not as slaves, but as sons. So let's pray that God would help us to live in his world as his children. Let's uh, ask God now. Father God, thank you for the privilege to be called a son of God. Father, we can never understand it that you would not only rescue us from sin, not only save us from ourselves, but that, Father, you would then bring us into your family. Father, it is way and above what we deserve. And, Father, we can never understand uh, what you have done. But, Father, thank you for that great love that has brought us into your family, that has made us uh, a Christ our brother and made us brothers and sisters of each other. Father, we pray that you'd help us to live in your world in a way that is worthy of the title that we have. Father, help us to live as sons of God. Uh, Father, sons of the King. Father, help us to live a life that is honouring to you and to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.